Hello, everybody, and welcome again to another episode of Views on View. I am Steve Edwards, the host with the Base for Radio and the Voice for Being a Mind, but I am still your host. And today on the panel with me, we have Lindsay Wardell. Hello from Portland. Also from Portland, yeah, sorry, I forgot to mention that's where I'm at. And Raymond Camden. Hello from Louisiana. Louisiana, so how's it down there? Are you getting, you guys getting much cold or uh, is it just sort of your usual Southern warm type stuff? Or? <laughs> it's a bit chilly, 40, 50s or so. Oh, wow, that sounds warm. Okay. When I went freelance, I was still only a few years into my development career. My first contract, I was paid 60 bucks an hour. Due to feedback from my friends, I raised it to 120 bucks an hour on the next contract. And due to the podcasts I was involved in and the screencasts I had made in the past, I started getting calls from people I'd never even heard of who wanted me to do development work for them because I had done that kind of work or talked about or demonstrated that kind of work in the videos and podcasts that I was making. Within a year, I was able to more than double my freelancing rates and I had more work than I could handle. If you're thinking about freelancing or have a profitable but not busy or fulfilling freelance practice, let me show you how to do it in my Dev Heroes Accelerator. Dev Heroes aren't just people who devs admire, they're also people who deliver for clients who know, like, and trust them. Let me help you double your income and fill your slowdowns. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. So today, our special guest is now my boss. His name's Jay, is it Hariani or Hariani? I don't think I've ever asked that. Is Hariani, but either is fine. Okay, Jay Hariani. Jay Hariani is the CTO of a company called GovTribe. And so, Jay, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and GovTribe, and we'll go from there. Sure. Thanks for having me, guys. Really good to talk and explain a little bit about what we do. Just to give you the background on what GovTribe is, so my business partners and I were all former consultants working in the industry of federal contracting. We left the consulting firm we worked for, I would say, about six or seven years ago. We wanted to build tools, basically, that we would have liked to have access to when we were doing this contracting work. So part of the challenge with government contracting is that the sort of you know, state of technology is not always cutting edge. So we wanted to build tools that would have let us basically find new opportunities to bid on, help understand the market, help profile competitors, sort of business intelligence and market intelligence tools. Along the way, we decided to roll in kind of bid tracking and CRM functionality. And uh, yeah, basically GovTrib is a sort of built out suite of tools for government contractors to help win government contracts. So I know that sounds like super sexy and fascinating, but you know, the, what we try to introduce into the stack is, um, you know, sort of ethos of like sound design, fun, you know, things kind of work the way that you'd think consumer software works. We try to make the user experience really sound. And we spend a lot of time doing that. So it's been great. It's been awesome working with everybody. Building products is a lot of fun, as I'm sure you folks all know. It can be also extremely sort of, you know, gut-wrenching. <laughs> but overall, it's been a wonderful experience. And as part of the stack, Vue has been a really important component. It's let us do things really quickly. It's really forgiving for, you know, rapid prototyping. And then it lets you go from sort of lightweight mock-ups of components and really evolve them and build them over time. So we really like the development flow with Vue and it's suited us really well. So that kind of, you know, soup to nuts is how we got here and Vue's relevance to what we're doing. So let's step back a little bit. Why don't you talk about yourself real quick and how you got into programming? I can't remember if you told me if you were doing programming when you were consulting or if you sort of learned it as when you and Nate formed GovTribe or uh, yeah. how did that all evolve? 
For sure. So I went to school for computer information systems, like sort of comp sci information systems type of degree. And when I graduated, I went into um, consulting, specifically international. So Nate and I would do work in basically all over the place, including Iraq, Afghanistan, Indonesia, a bunch of different countries over the years. But consulting, at least in the sense that you know we were practicing it, it's primarily paper de- deliverable. So you're building PowerPoints and decks. But related to like large systems implementations, IT strategy work, but I, I had done programming in college and so innate. So when we started GovTribe, we just basically got back into it. And that's, you know, how we've gone for the last, I think I said six or seven years, every single day, basically just writing JavaScript and PHP code to the point where I start to see it in my sleep. But yeah, I mean, we had background in, in computer science a little bit, at least, although we hadn't done programming kind of as a trade actively since college. So was it, what was it that led you to pick Laravel as uh, your background framework? Was it just because of existing familiarity with PHP that you already had? Were there some other, what other decisions or criteria were used to choose that? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a good question. So I think we used PHP in college. And um, when it came time for us to kind of look at server-side frameworks, Laravel seemed the sort of easiest you know, quick to get started. Um, the documentation was awesome. It's highly opinionated when it comes to, you know, having a lot of bits and pieces um, built in, how you should do things in Laravel. So that sort of, as somebody who was just getting started, doing programming as a profession seemed like a really good sort of guidepost. And Laravel, luckily, you know, it, it seemed like it was getting a lot of momentum then, but has grown um, substantially in, in sort of its adoption. It seems like one of the more popular PHP frameworks yeah, it was just a right fit for us at the time, and it's really grown with us, much like you. So we've been pretty happy with it. Not in like it didn't do X, Y, Z that another framework did. Uh, framework didn't. It just seemed like a really well-rounded capability. The ORM is solid, um, although we've not always been totally happy with some aspects of Laravel. Overall, it's been a really good experience. I'm I'm not as familiar with Laravel as I am with things like .NET or Node for using or setting up backend services. You, you mentioned that Laravel is a very opinionated framework. What what kind of opinions does it have that kind of direct the application development? Yeah, so the, um, the first thing that comes to mind would probably be the dependency injections, how it uses facades. Essentially, how you access dependencies across the stack has always been through this concept of facades, which I guess was controversial at some point, but essentially they're like global aliases for components. So injected into the, the IOC container in Laravel. So that is, and I'm, you know, there's like a layer that I go down to, and then there's a layer that Laravel goes down to. But when you want dependencies out, uh, and you want them sort of fully baked with all of the constructor arguments satisfied, you get them from its IOC container, which is available anywhere in the app. So that sort of mind-boggling initially made a lot of sense as we went, and we ended up, you know, sort of putting our own, injecting our own dependencies into the IOC container, which the framework author explains how you should or should not do. So it's dependent, the way you access dependencies in Laravel is super opinionated. Other aspects of it, so how you develop additional functionality for Laravel is through its system of packages, which are like pretty similar to what a composer dependency looks like. So if you want to extend the functionality of Laravel, you can extend um, certain service providers to gain new methods capability to work with other databases. So there's a database service provider or a cache service provider, 
which works by default with the file system, but could be extended to work with Redis or could be extended to work with Mongo. They're giving you a lot of that sort of capability out of the box and then telling you exactly how you should implement extensions to it. So I think that's what I mean when I say opinionated. A lot of the, and you know, maybe well thought out is another way of terming it. But yeah, it seems to work really well for what we've been doing and where we've felt it sort of box us in, we've been able to extend it with our own custom packages. So for a data store, we're using Mongo on the back end as compared to a SQL type of database, SQL Server, MySQL, Maria, et cetera. So what was the, uh, what was the reasoning for choosing NoSQL versus SQL for um, your back end? Yeah. So when it came to, <laughs> that's a really good question. And I think, you know, it's been a long time at this point. The, so we originally started out using Drupal and MySQL or MySQL, and we were feeling really boxed in by the inflexibility of um, SQL databases when you have a lot of uh, the need to embed a lot of data. So a lot of our, and also an unpredictable schema. So when you're building an application that takes data from a lot of third parties um, or a lot of external APIs, so GovTribe's first step in sort of delivering the products that we show our users is to gather data from like 20 other things, um, specifically public federal data sources. So there's a um, federal procurement data system that has contract award data. There's a contract opportunity system called SAM.gov. There's vendor registration data, subcontract data, a bunch of different things. Those sort of formats, if you will, of that data is not under our control. And Mongo made it really easy to sort of wrap somebody else's data in our own sort of like uh, translation layer. So you could have, for example, a raw construct, which was just the incoming database records from those other systems, typically in JP, JSON format. So that was well suited to Mongo. You would want to store that and access it later without having to call those systems. So you were able to wrap an embedded JSON within a Mongo document and still have access to it. So I think, you know, thinking back through our original decisions around sort of schema and data design, the document DBs are really well suited to uh, unpredictability and fluidity in sort of the um, incoming data structure. So I would not have known how to do that with an SQL database, just because the pre, you know, you're presupposing schema, which obviously can change a lot, but it just makes it a little bit more flexible when you don't have necessarily a predetermined schema and you're trying to store a bunch of other people's data. All right. So, so you said you started out using Drupal? For did, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I could, having worked in Drupal for many years, I could completely see how that would box you in, especially yeah. with the dynamic stuff that uh, you're doing with the data stores and stuff. So, yeah, I think Drupal can probably be extended to do, but it's, you know, the, the use case wasn't really like a CMS. Um, right. Drupal gave us a nice starting point. And I think that also flowed into us using PHP more in the future or later. Yeah. You don't really need the front end of Drupal. You really just need the back end for the data store. I'm yep. guessing, was your plan to use Drupal as the front end as well? And it just... It was, yeah. So we actually talked to um, the, the Drupal guy that started Pantheon. So we had oh, Pantheon, yeah. you know, we were using Drupal like for production and the current version of GovTribe has gone through, you know, several iterations, but version one was based on Drupal, maybe version two. Version one might've been Squarespace, but at least one of those early <laughs> cuts of it was um, Drupal. And yeah, Drupal is great because, you know, there's this like sort of ease of entry with the UI and the admin pages. Um, sure. It almost seems like you don't need to get too deep into the code to build out new functionality, but you do, kind of, or at least you hit limits. And it's oh, not yeah. like Drupal can't, you know, 
fulfill use cases like this. It would just require a lot of custom Drupal module coding. And this was, I think, Drupal 6. So it was mm-hmm. before, you know, they fully bought onto OOP, PHP stuff, which, right. yeah. So. Yeah, which really didn't come till Drupal 8. Really? Going into Drupal 9. Yeah, Drupal 7 had some entity API stuff, but there was still a lot, quite a lot of functional stuff in there as well. Gotcha. Um, and then Drupal 8. So, so cool. So now I know the other thing, maybe you could touch on this a bit. This is more uh, Nate's work is the ETL mm-hmm. work that's done. So basically, you know, you've, you mentioned all of these different systems. They've all got different formats. They've all got, you know, different structures and how they're provided and so on. So what you're using Laravel then, I guess this is Laravel. I don't know if maybe you massage the data before running it through Laravel is getting into some sort of workable format that, that yeah. GovCard can use as compared to the source itself, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So it turns out that Laravel is actually pretty good for building um, console-based applications, which the ETL side of GovTribe is primarily a series of, you know, batch processing commands. So there's clients to talk to a lot of different websites, and you know, those are wrapped inside of commands, which is essentially like a bit of code that runs on a schedule um, with you know, sort of input and output tied to a server or a set of servers. So yeah, it's 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 all Laravel from you know bytes in the door to what the user sees. Um, so those console commands are going out and getting data frequently, performing transformation tasks, creating like a pipeline of ETL tasks. Yeah, Laravel is great for console applications. I think I read at some point that somebody had had created a fork or something dependent on Laravel's core dependencies to um, just build console applications and take out all the web stuff. Yeah, it has a you know really sort of elegant way of building console apps and it's worked pretty well for us. I think that it's just a general purpose framework. So it's kind of whatever you do with it, you know, it's, it's up to you. It's giving you a way to handle input and output and schedule commands. The queuing system in Laravel is really powerful too, in that you can, you know, really scale up PHP, which is difficult otherwise. So you could have, you know, 500 simultaneous queue workers processing queue jobs. So the way we handle concurrency or high throughput batch operations is queuing. So you could have, you know, 100,000 or a million indexing jobs or just to give an example, which obviously would take forever if you did them sort of serially. But if you split that amongst 500 PHP processes running on, you know, six AWS EC2 boxes, it can actually go pretty quickly. So that's how we handle scaling with Laravel. I got sidetracked there, but the console commands and scaling it is kind of critical to what we're doing. Sure, sure. So uh, Lindsay, Raven, you guys have any more questions on Laravel before we move on? I've, I've not written PHP in like 20 years, so <laughs> it's all new to me. No worries. Yeah. No worries. Okay, so Laravel's for the back end. So now we'll move on to Vue. And I know that, you know, Laravel has some pretty tight integration with Vue. I've seen, you know, Adam Wadden or obviously Taylor Otwell that, you know, talking about using it with Vue or Laracast with uh, Jeffrey Ray. So what was the feature about Vue that drew you to it? I know you mentioned the easy prototyping and so on. Was the integration with, Laravel an item, or had that really been developed at the point that you were using Laravel and, and looking at a front end? It was. And I mean, you'd probably need to ask somebody who's more sort of, you know, read up on the sort of maintainers of Laravel and why they chose to integrate Vue as to like mm-hmm. how it got there and why right. they chose Vue. But yeah, so it was built into Laravel, f- has been for a long time. There, there's even like something called Mix Elixir, which is like a Laravel, like, wrapper to do webpack configuration tasks. 
Yeah, and I think like the admin bits that come with Laravel in later iterations are built on Vue. So it, it seemed like an obvious segue from our PHP knowledge. Hey, like, you know, we had done JavaScript before, but the earlier iterations of GovTribe were based on Blade templates, which is Laravel's templating um, engine. The decision to go like full on SPA and use Vue for that, partially influenced by the fact that Laravel has tight integration with Vue. So I would say that we sort of, we stopped using Elixir and just switched to Webpack at some point. And now probably we need to go to Vue CLI just because we had very like specific needs around what Webpack was doing and how to configure things like CSS stripping and you know tra- transpiling and not wanting certain browsers, but wanting others based on our um, you know Google Analytics data um, and just really trying to optimize for the browsers that were super common. And it became a little tricky to do that without just talking to Webpack directly mainly because the documentation for Webpack has answers to a lot of the how do you do those things, which you know maybe not everybody thought to ask with something like Elixir, which is designed to get you started quickly. I've heard that Laravel has tight integration with Vue, but I'm not 100% certain what that means. Is it just <laughs> that when you start a Laravel project, there's a Vue front end spun up for you, or is there something deeper than that? Yeah, so uh, to be totally honest with you, the current... So we're... If there, you know, the view integration with Laravel that we used, we're basically just using Laravel as a backend API server to talk to view. As far as how it works today, I wouldn't be the best person to ask that question since we haven't started a new Laravel and view project in quite some time. From my recollection, there are aspects of Laravel that just seem to want you to work with view. So for example, and, and this is current, we use a testing framework based on, or it's called Laravel Dusk. We use the testing framework Laravel Dusk. It allows you to make view assertions through PHP. So you can say assert view, you know, component has data value for or something. So that stuff seems like he's chosen a front-end framework, he being Taylor Otwell or the team of people working on Laravel to use. And that's view because it's constantly showing up in different bits and pieces within the app. A lot of the walkthroughs, are written for view. As far as deeper integration, we're pretty much, you know, it's it's like it's an API that's sending data to view and it communicates to view with a consistent way. But for all Laravel cares, it could be React, it's talking to or something else at this point. At some point, I think maybe the only takeaway is that we sort of outgrew the like quick start, get started quickly aspects of it and then just ended up doing it all ourselves um, just based on it's an API, it sends data to view, view sends data to it. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. All right, that makes sense. So, it, it's more that Vue is integrated at community level and at the testing level rather than directly integrated into Laravel as a framework. Does that sound accurate? At least for for how you're using it. Yeah, for how we're using it, for sure. Okay. Yeah. And it, and like I said, I'm just you know without just googling it now. I think that there is deeper integration, but not that we're using. So one of the important aspects I know that you mentioned to me when we first met was SEO. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just for a little background, when it comes to SPAs versus server-side rendering with something like Nuxt, part of the, the, the reason for using server-side rendering is SEO because of the way that an SPA is loaded in the browser and there isn't initial HTML hydrated. So obviously you're using it in SPA mode and RCO is actually very good. And so I was wondering if you could just talk about what, we do behind the scenes in terms of pre-rendering to be able to give GovTribe such such a good level of SEO? 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, we definitely didn't start off with it um, working the way we expected to do, expected it to. So SEO is a lot easier with play templates. I mean, that's less about view and more about Google and other search providers trying to figure out how to index that type of content. So it seems like Google's strategy, and I mean, we do focus heavily on Googlebot and just how Google indexes stuff in general. How that's changed over time has influenced what we've done over time. So they've become... So initially, when we when we switched to, to, to uh, view, we did see a drop-off in traffic. And part of that was just related to us on being unable to get new pages into Google. So we you know, really focus on being discoverable via SERPs. So we, you know, have, I think, at least two or three million pages in Google. And, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of people find GovTribe search pages or pages through search results every month. So it's really critical to us that that works. But yeah, it took a lot of doing to get, you know, non-SSR view to work well and effectively. I can give you guys, I don't know how <laughs> fascinating that is to your audience, but I can talk oh, about absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, um, so the initial problems are that sort of, and you can read about this on all the various Google Webmaster resources, that, you know, Google would index SPA apps with multiple passes, right? So the first pass, it would download assets, and it could be until several, you know, days later or weeks that would actually bother to render the pages. And I mean, part of that just comes down to electricity and how much energy they're using to actually download, render, energy as in like bandwidth, energy as in like server time, and SPA. It's just a lot harder when the browser hasn't already, or the server isn't returning rendered HTML. So it adds up when you're like at scale, I think. So the way that they seem to address that is to allow you to um, serve different content to Googlebot. They used to forbid you from doing that. They used to call it cloaking. But now if you're upfront about it, you can actually pre-render content to and send to Google you know, so when Googlebot is accessing your site with a user agent, um, we can pre-render a page, which would look, you know, significantly different or close, but, you know, it wouldn't be what we would send a user because there's no, you know, interactivity. It's just HTML. But we send that to Googlebot and Googlebot's fine with that. And it's been really effective. So we're able to get back to our earlier search performance by using that approach. The complexity there is pretty significant. So you need to, Google provides a tool called Rendertron, which is essentially Google-specific pre-rendering server that runs in front of you know your web servers and creates like a sort of pool of Chromes. So we have that running on several servers. If you call GovTribe with the right user agents, you'll get back pre-rendered content from that pre-rendering system. But normal users will just access the website. There's other things to you know ease ease sort of pre-rendering with SPAs. You know you don't have to serve uh, like images, charts, things that the sort of search engine bot's not going to be able to process. Again, they used to be way more restrictive with that. And I think they're just embracing the reality that, you know, in in browser JavaScript rendering is the future. So they're just going to have to get their heads wrapped around how to um, index that. And you doing the work for them seems like their answer, basically. So you bought, you pre-rendering the HTML and sending it to them is seems to be the direction they want to go to. Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. So I, I apologize if I missed this, but is that a manual process where you pre-render everything and submit it to Google? Or is that something no. that you, like you said, you set up RenderTron 
And when the bot comes, it just generates that content for them. Yeah, so it's it's real time, except that we are constantly pre-rendering. So never not be pre-rendering <laughs> because Googlebot doesn't want to wait and you're going to impact your throughput of how many pages can get into Googlebot. So yes, if Googlebot comes to a page that happens not to be pre-rendered, the Chrome would have to load the page, send back the HTML, which we've got down to like 1.2 seconds. Um, but by pre-rendering you know, hundreds of thousands of pages, you can serve them from Nginx's static file cache, which gets that down to like 50 MS or something, um, which is obviously way preferable. So we're constantly pre-rendering portions of the site to get it to be where we want it to be. But in many cases, you would just a, a search engine bot would hit a page and just have to wait while it pre-renders. Of course, you want to avoid that as much as possible. So you're storing all of those pages pre-rendered as HTML files that Nginx can then set up, send out, or is it in a cache? Yeah, so Nginx has built-in static file caching, and um, okay. it serves it from a cache. But it's basically just files sitting that Nginx has saved that are sitting in AWS on various you know shared storage, so multiple renderers can access them. But yeah, that's pretty much it. So it's just saving them to a file on a disk somewhere and then serving them when Google wants them. It basically, the other thing too is, and you guys would know more about this, it seemed like the SSR thing with Vue was always caveated in a way that seemed like it made it really complicated to, to use all the components you wanted. You have to worry about other approaches. You had to you know set up SSR in a way that you know was different from how people expected you to use. So that's where Nuxt, I think, came in. But it's really nice just to write normal view code without having to worry about SSR if your only SSR kind of challenge is um, a search engine optimization. That makes a lot of sense to me. I, I do a lot of Nuxt work, and it's, it's for internal tooling, so we don't need to worry about search engine optimization. Gotcha. But even, even then, I'm running into components that were only designed for client-side rendering and either break or refuse to build properly uh, yeah. when served over SSR. So I, I get it. It makes a lot of sense to, to use just client-side view because it, it works and it works great. Yeah, client-side view seems to have all the advantages that drew us to view and server-side, server-rendered view seems like just kind of a, another world of complexity. Um, the other thing is, I think the expectation with SSR view, at least when I looked at it, was that you were running on a Node.js-based uh, web server which we're not. So that seemed like a deal breaker for us to, because we wanted to run, to have Laravel serve everything. Otherwise we would need, you know, API web servers running Laravel and then view web servers running node to get the API to the view code. It would just add more complexity basically. So. So the Google render Tron stuff that just runs, you're running that on a separate, like an easy two instance. Yeah. Itself. Yeah. They try to get you to run it on Google cloud. So it's designed to deploy to their, um, uh, cloud service, but it works pretty well on multiple EC2 boxes. Yeah. So it's just running on normal EC2 hardware. I think you had mentioned that there was like part of your network was just for Rendertron. Like what percent of your forward facing like web servers is just for that? I would say that like a third, I mean, we don't have many forward facing web servers, but I think like a third of the web server capacity would be for um, pre-rendering. With EC2, which is not a huge expense, I mean, it's not like we have 50 web servers. We're talking like in the single digits. So throw on a few more servers, let them worry about what Google wants, and yeah, you're good to go. Of course, it's not that easy actual <laughs> to practice, but that's the you know high-level sketch. So what other, I'm just trying to think, 
are there any other view features that we use that uh, maybe you think has an advantage over other frameworks or Drupal? I know, for instance, and this, I guess this isn't so much view, we do a lot of charting and you're neck deep into D3. So you want to, can you talk about D3? I'm not, uh, I haven't had the opportunity to get in and work with it yet. Yeah. I dealt with you, but you want to talk about D3 and how it works by itself and maybe how it integrates with you, if there's any particular integration. I would say that D3 is relatively new for us. If you guys look at the website, some of the um, tree map and stream graph visualizations are via D3. The bulk of our charting in the past has been with Chart.js. And the view support for that is pretty good. Somebody smarter than myself created basically a pretty lightweight wrapper around Chart.js to have it work with Vue. And that's worked effectively like since we've launched the version of GovTried um, using Vue. So big fan of that library for what it's worth. I would say that D3, and I think you and I talked about this, Steve, it's it's still like its own world, which I have not cracked totally. So I mean, it, D3 is super powerful. And I think you know if you're going to do legitimate visualizations, charts and graphs, any kind of like data-driven reporting, it's the way to go to just make the commitment to learn D3. But it, it, it exists on a plane of you know JavaScript, which I think is like sort of foreign to many people. So it has its own selector libraries. It has its own sort of, you know, way to do. So by default, D3 is wants to, you know, render SVGs into the DOM after the page loads, which is not great for view. I don't think it, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I don't think there's like a view library that like, sort of faithfully wraps the uh, D3 functionality because D3 is so low level, I'm not sure what it would do. To use D3, I think the expectation is you write D3 JavaScript kind of chained methods. It's super powerful and awesome. And I first sort of got exposed to D3 and realized the power of it when I realized that the New York Times, the the person who was originally doing all the data visualizations for NYT.com was the person that started Mike Bostock, I think his name was or is D3. And I was always impressed by what New York Times was doing digitally when it came to visualizations, charting, and really explaining data visually for a mass audience. But yeah, I would not say like D3 is is hard. <laughs> it's, it's, it's challenged me significantly. And making it work in Vue has been hard too. So we did a tree map visualization recently, which is D3 based. It is Vue components. So the nodes in the SVG are Vue components and they pass events up and props down just like any other view component but um getting them to sort of size correctly it's dependent on d3 scaling functions rendering sort of labels and axes it's again dependent on d3 you know there are helpers to do that in d3 um, to render a chart axis which don't really have anything to do with view necessarily i mean maybe they could but you would need somebody to like really devote a lot of time i think to building a library like that but that's my, you know, sort of extemporaneous speech about D3. If you guys have any questions about what I've been doing with it, happy to answer them. Yeah, that's very consistent with other people I've talked to or, or heard from that use D3, that it's an amazingly complex tool. And, and once you get your head around it and can use it, then you can do all kinds of things. But getting to that point is, is what's uh, incredibly difficult just because of, as you said, how low level it is as compared to view components, which I think a lot of you developers are used to. To yep. using to easily plug into their applications. Yeah, there's a level of abstraction that you know modern JavaScript frameworks have that I feel like D3. It's very procedural. It's very like you know you write sort of chained. You render SVG like attached to SVG like fill data into SVG. It seems really foreign to me every time I use it, but I'm slowly getting there. Um, but I think the learning curve is steep. 
Do you have any recommendations for good resources to get started, or is it mostly just follow the documentation and guides on the main website? D3 In-Depth has been really helpful uh, to me. It's it's basically a step-by-step, example-driven learning website. And um, their documentation seems to change a lot, but it, it is useful if you can find a example or, it, sorry, their examples change a lot. So what I would often find on um, the D3 sort of gallery site, which is bl.oceks, I think, is that it would be for an earlier version of D3. So, you know, they're growing it or the, the people that run it are constantly growing it. So I, I like the example-based learning and D3 in depth seem to do that really well. But I would say that like, I'm pretty convinced that if you want to make really awesome charts and graphs, you know, you should just make it your job to learn D3. I feel like some of the things we've done recently would not be possible without it. Yeah, we certainly have a lot of charts and graphs and there's some pages that have you yeah, multiple and it's it's pretty fascinating to watch the the capabilities of, of the charting and graphing and drilling down and, and filtering and so on. Yeah, it, it definitely, you know, helps drive value. I mean, the goal with a lot of those charts is we're sort of unearthing or surfacing insights that people would have to read thousands of lines of a spreadsheet to otherwise, um, you know, get their head wrapped around. And um, the charts really do an amazing job, I think, of, of getting people um, answers about the data. If they're looking at a market or a specific type of product they want to sell to the government, knowing who's buying it, what the government calls it, stuff like that um, can be really, you know, displayed really quickly with the charts. So yeah, they've been super helpful. Awesome, awesome. So, is there anything, any other features of View that uh, GovTribe uses that you think would be be worth mentioning? I think like the biggest feature. I mean, I would love to like go down like a checklist. So, I think like holistically, why is View so you know valuable as a tool? Is that it? You know, you sort of can iteratively build on your knowledge of View to go from like sort of a blog up to an enterprise. You know resource planning system, I think, if you want. So views componentization, and I know that they've changed how the components talk to one another in version three uh, significantly, but just sort of the the accessibility, ease of use, and the how declarative the single file components are. It's like, there's my scripts, there's my styles, and there's my code, um, and there's my um, template all in one file. I just find little stuff like that's really genius about view and always makes me happy to write code in view. In general, I wouldn't say it's like, oh, this is the feature of view that, you know, no other framework has. I think it's like the ecosystem too of developers, the the library of different components, like pretty much everybody seems to be building in view. It seems to be coming up here with React um, in a lot of ways, or at least I hope it continues to. So I think just like the ease of use, accessibility, and sort of intuitiveness of view are its killer feature rather than like view X or, you know, prop passing or something like that. A good example in my mind has always been the single file components and how easy they are to work with and understand for like a, a newbie developer. Yeah, if you think about, you know, just recently, uh, there's some functionality that I was working on that required me to write render functions with, you know, with create element. And uh, after having to do that for a little while, and I remember what I showed you, I think we both had a greater appreciation for the HTML portion, the template portion yeah. of a single file component uh, in particular, things such as V4, where you're able to iterate over a collection of some, you know, data and put it as a list or, you know, however you want to format it just using standard HTML. And then, you know, just your uh, curly, curly brackets with your data inside of it and, and you're off and running. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's super exciting. Like, I feel like the cap- capability in view is just, 
it's it's it it really grows with you and honestly like it is really elegant it's or it can go up to like massively powerful right so just you know component doesn't even have to hold uh, reactivity or you know it could have to be dynamic and just be like a you know an icon but the fact that you are able to componentize you know um, your code in a way that's structured and logical um, has always made sense to me intuitively awesome so raymond or Lindsay, any other questions before we move to picks not for me i have one more i'm curious jay if you since, since we've been talking about view right now have you taken a look at view three at all are there any plans to migrate GovTribe to view three from view two? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So Steve and I were talking about that. I think um, looking through the migration, so to actually take advantage of the capabilities of like a uh, composition API, I think would be a larger push. But uh, yeah, we want to move to view three. And I think just going through the migration um, checklist, some of the things like the loss of directives, we would just wait for the sort of UI libraries and other things we depend on to, to update to reflect that. And then when they do, it should be a pretty simple transition. I think to actually use the composition API, that would be a larger rewrite. We probably have, I don't know, 500 or more components at this point. And there's probably an entire sort of framework you could build out of. We were talking today about component libraries. I think one of the challenges with Vue that we've gotten as, as we've used it um, to this level of enterprise kind of use is the um, reuse of components. And I think that's addressed in V3, but it would probably take a larger rewrite to, to make take advantage of. But yeah, absolutely. I think we'll probably get to that sometime next year. It seems like there's it's going to be V2s will be supported at least for some amount of time. I know V1 was when they switched to V2. That was about when we got involved in Vue. That makes sense. I remember when V3 came out, the Internet Explorer was not initially re supported. Is that something that's been addressed at this point, or is that not a target for GovTribe? So uh, View 2, did you say, or View 3? View 3. Uh, when View 3 came out, they didn't support IE 11 uh, due to the reactivity engine relying on proxies, which is not supported in IE. Gotcha. Yeah, I think that we are now only targeting... So we're targeting IE that's um, WebKit-based. I think we, we throw an error for Trident versions of IE, so like you know, we would work on IE for Edge, I'm sorry. Yeah, I forget which one is now based on WebKit, Edge. Yeah, we don't Ed, have any, Edge is the new one, yeah. Yeah, we don't have any requirement to support IE at this point, but we throw like a friendly error. I think the traffic has substantially dropped at this point, so. Yeah, I, I just pulled it up as you were describing it. And yes, that is a very nice error, actually. I like it. Oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, you know, it at some point it just became this like, the IE... IE um, sort of compatibility testing was so time consuming and annoying. We had to use browser stack to like simulate different older versions of IE and we just gave up. And it also required a lot of polyfills that caused the code to be a little heavy. So it's nice to just be done with it and to give people the chance to upgrade. We have a lot of government users and even them, they have not complained about the lack of IE recently. So yeah, I was just about to ask about that. I work at Daimler Trucks and a majority of our clients are using Internet Explorer. So I was curious what the government side looked like. I think it's, you know, I haven't, there's no like analytics tracking on how often we're showing that error. I haven't looked in, in Google to see, um, but nobody has chosen not to subscribe because of it in recent memory. So I think the security, I don't even know if they're still patching IE. That would probably be a big motivator for Gov folks to, to upgrade. Awesome. Uh, yeah. I am good now, Steve. That, that was my last question. All right. 
Great. So with that, we will move on to picks. Hey, folks. I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. So for those who might be new listeners, picks are things that we like, that we're interested in. It doesn't have to be tech-related. It can be a book, a movie, a toy, uh, you know, you name it. So with that, we will let our guests go first. Jay, what's your pick for us today? So I, you know really dig the Apple stuff. And I really was interested to see the um, Marquez Brownlee review of the AirPod Max today. I would love, mainly because I work in a basement above which there's constant stomping from a series of very active toddlers to have better noise cancellation. Like noise cancellation is really critical to my productivity at this point. So I was disappointed to see that I would have to wait like six months or something crazy to get them. But you know, I, I'm glad that Apple is doing uh, crazy headphones. I think it'll be really cool. And um, by all accounts, the noise cancellation is pretty awesome. So that's my pick. All right. Lindsay, what about you? I have two picks today. I'll, I'll follow up on the Apple one. I've been extremely interested since the announcement of Apple Silicon at Apple. And prior to last month, I owned zero Apple devices. And now I'm have an older iMac next to me and I've got an iPhone 12 mini and it's been really useful to learn about what's going on in the Apple ecosystem. So I found a channel on YouTube by Renee Ritchie, who is one of the panelists on uh, MacBreak Weekly on the twit.tv network. And his videos are excellent. He goes into a whole bunch of stuff explaining what's going on and helping you make the right decisions on what to buy or what not to buy. So that's my first pick. The second is an app I've been trying out for the last couple of weeks, it is called Saffron. And Saffron is, it builds itself as the home for all of your recipes. You can, so whenever you go online and you're trying to find a recipe, you always have to deal with that large multi-paragraph description of how they came to discover this recipe. And then at the very bottom, if there aren't any ads, you find the recipe. This app allows you to both input your own recipes and it will allow you to put in a website, it will strip out all the extra stuff and just list the ingredients and the steps, as well as pictures. Using that, you can then put together a meal plan for a given week, broken down by breakfast, lunch, and dinner for each day. And it will then generate a shopping cart so that you can put together your purchasing list for that week. And for free, it supports, I believe, 25 recipes, and then you can pay to subscribe for more. It, is, it has been very nice to use. There's a mobile app version, there's a web version. So I, I recommend that if you're needing a tool to organize your meal planning uh, for the week. Awesome. We always like the websites that strip out all the stuff you don't need. Uh, Raymond, what do you have for us today? So I, I just started baking 
maybe nine or so months ago. So I'm kind of blown away by the saffron thing. I'm kind of speechless. That's really, really something I've, I've needed for a while. So thank you. Outside of that, my pick is Tenet, the uh, new movie by yes. Christopher Nolan that took forever to get out. You could download it legally, you know, purchase it, et cetera. Uh, you don't have to go to a movie theater and uh, risk your life. It's interesting. I, I watched it last night. I liked it. I can honestly say I don't quite understand <laughs> what happened. And it needs a second watch. But I think it's worth your money to see. And again, please watch it at home. Don't go out and see it. I did not know that was available um, for rental. That's awesome. I can't wait to see it. What What platform is that on, Raymond? I believe it's on all of them. Okay. Like all two or three. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mac, uh, Apple, yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you. So I am going last and probably least. Um, so I'm going to go with a movie today. I've never always, never really been a big movie watcher. There's countless movies, you know, that won Oscars and were well-known cultural hits, you know, pop culture hits that I've never watched. So once in a while, I'll see one on TV and say, hey, I should probably watch that. So last night, I settled on Scrooged, which is a 1988 movie with Bill Murray that is basically, you know, sort of comedic take on the classic Christmas Carol movie. And, you know, it's classic Bill Murray style. If you've seen him in anywhere from Caddyshack to Stripes to, you know, anything that he's been in. And it's got Karen Allen as his romantic interest. But looking at the names, I was watching the names. And if you grew up in the 80s, there's so many names that that you recognize that were really famous back then. You know, John Houseman is always famous for the Smith and Barney commercials. And uh, Lee Majors, $6 million man. Uh, it even has Bill Murray's own brother as his brother. And then one of my favorite, favorite uh, sort of offbeat comedians from back then, who was also another raging Oscar-winning cult classics like uh, One Crazy Summer, uh, Bobcat Goldthwaite. He always definitely had his... Uh, his own unique style of talking, shall we say. But anyway, good movie, a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, I just want to really enjoy it. So with that, we will end our episode today. Thank you to our panelists. And thank you to Jay for coming on. Tell us about GovTribe and View. And we will see everybody next time on Views on View. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.